So I was 11 when I went through the initiation ceremony and a small book with a white leather cover was placed in my hands. This was my official entrance into an experience I don't share about publicly a lot, but was a significant part of my youth. I had just joined an organization that my mother, my aunts, all my older female cousins had been a part of, the International Order of Job's Daughters. I was in a youth organization sponsored by the Order of Freemasons. You see, I came from a family that had multiple generations of involvement in Freemasonry. My parents actually first met through the Masonic youth groups when they were young. Now, this isn't a part of my life I speak about a lot, uh, in part because I know there's both a lot of mystery and a lot of misinformation about what the whole Masonic experience is. And I also personally have my own mixed feelings, to say the least, about this part of my upbringing. Feelings I'm still truthfully making sense of decades later, particularly the patriarchy, the white supremacy, the heteronormativity that I would say are kind of embedded in these organizations. But in spite of all that, I bring this up because of that little book with the leather cover I received at age 11. It was called our ritual. And in the book of ritual was a liturgy of sorts, a script for the various ceremonies the organization engaged in. We were encouraged to learn the ceremonies by memory. I rehearsed certain speeches over and over again. They weren't so different from the monologues I was learning for my theater classes at the same time. In fact, in my time in Job's Daughters, I actually was part of a competitive team that won awards around the state for our performance of ritual. For most of my, us teenagers, the ritual was rote. It was performative. We rarely asked questions or really thought much about why we were performing certain actions or saying the words that we were saying. But occasionally, there were these rare moments. For me, it was generally in the singing of a corporate song at the end of our gatherings, where I would feel something stirring, something compelling, a connection to the broader group of girls that I was a part of. It was powerful enough that as distanced as I am from that whole Job's daughter part of my life, I can still remember being genuinely moved in those moments. While there's much that I still question and critique about my time as a Job's daughter, uh, one thing I can now appreciate is the way it instilled in me, in a unique way, I think, for, at, for someone at a young age, uh, a respect for the power of ritual. When anthropologists study different human societies, a primary metric that they examine in understanding a particular culture is the rituals that the culture enacts. Anthropologists, social scientists, psychologists, all testify to the fact that rituals are core to the human social experience. They help a community connect with one another, with their history, with their value system. Now, many of us as 21st century Western Americans living in pretty secular cities don't have a lot of experience with formal ritual like I've described. Our culture on the whole is not very ritualistic, particularly when we compare our culture to indigenous communities around the world. But I would argue that the need for ritual is so natural 
that even in a society that doesn't publicly value ritual, we've adopted our own without perhaps even recognizing what has become ritualized. Our rituals might look today like weddings, graduation ceremonies, first day of school and last day of school, photos and Facebook posts, sporting events, holiday celebrations. In fact, I'd suggest that one of the reasons COVID has been so distressing this year and continues to be is that many of our corporate rituals have been disrupted by social distancing. We've had to adapt everything to some virtual format and some of those adaptations have worked better than others. So what makes a ritual a ritual, not just a habit? Scholars in various fields identify a number of common qualities, but for this conversation, I'd like to focus us in on three common characteristics. When, when I think about ritual, I think about how all of these are in play. There's a recurring rhythm. Rituals are not just one-off events. They recur through cycles of time in kind of a predictable way. They're embodied collectively. A ritual is not simply like a, an, an athlete's pregame um, regimen. It's something that happens communally. And then they're deeply symbolic. The meaning of the ritual is generally steeped in symbolism. So why am I talking about this whole concept of ritual this morning? What does it have to do with anything? Well, I bring this up today because I believe this week we are preparing to enact what I think is one of our most powerful rituals as United States citizens the ritual of this American experience, we're engaging our election ritual. Consider the characteristics I just named of ritual and how they pertain to the election process. We have a recurring rhythm. Our election season happens at this time every year, and, and there's a special rhythm with every four years when a new presidency is on the ballot. There's a sense of collective embodiment. This isn't something we just do completely on our own. We embody through canvassing, through attending rallies, through texting and phone banking, helping get out the vote, uh, and of course, casting our own ballots. And then there's a deep symbolism to the act of voting. While the vote does have certainly real implications, there's also symbolism to it. We're voting not simply to enact legislation or elect a certain set of candidates, but because we believe in what the vote represents. If all of this is true, that elections are one of the most vital civic rituals in our body politic, it's also true that we've seen, like in other cultural rituals this year, 2020 has brought with it many breaks from the way this ritual tends to go, all of which can feel particularly distressing. The pandemic has brought new ways of voting, along with new COVID risks at the polling places across the country. And that's meant not only new opportunities to vote by mail or, or vote from your car, depending on where you live for many, but also new opportunities for voter suppression and intimidation. There are new avenues to challenge the results that have been introduced, laying the groundwork for the real threat of a contested election potentially coming our way. And of course, it must be said that this is especially concerning because we have an incumbent president who has historically broken with our national norms and rituals and has currently not committed to a peaceful transition should the vote not go his way. So as much as many of us look to this week, I think, 
with this hope that maybe this election might bring an end to four years that have felt increasingly divisive and dangerous. It is not at all clear that this is the case. There is a real possibility that rather than bringing us together, our national civic ritual might further tear our na national collective apart. So how are we as passionate citizens who are also people of faith meant to think through and make sense of all of it? Well, we've been engaging this series this fall. We're calling Remembering the Collective. And in it, we've been considering how challenging the season of COVID distancing has been to our experience of corporate identity. And to speak to us in that, we've been looking at a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in Corinth for some inspiration because he too wrote to a community of Jesus followers who were having a hard time feeling connected because of the various social pressures and divisions that they experienced. In this series, we've examined a core metaphor that Paul put forward for how the young spiritual communities there were to understand themselves as part of this body of Christ, he said with multiple members working together in different ways, but united in a common purpose. We've talked about how different gifts are given to various members in the communal body for the common good. And today, I want to turn our attention to one of the core rituals that was central to the community's practice, and also consider the challenges that the Corinthian community had in living out that ritual. And I hope that the topic might be helpful for us to reflect on as we prepare to undergo this citizenry ritual ourselves this week, and that we might learn some helpful insights on ritual observance in general from what Paul is teaching here. So this morning, we're going to look at the emerging ritual in the early church that Paul called the Lord's Supper. Before we look at what Paul had to say about the Lord's Supper, we need a little context. It's important to remember when reading Paul's instructions to the church in Corinth, what those communities looked like at the time. The churches of Paul's day were meeting in private homes, so they were relatively small gatherings. And those gatherings happened in the evening around supper time every Sunday. They centered around a community meal that each house church ate together. Now the churches in Corinth, as we've named before, were, were very diverse for their time, bringing together Jewish believers, non-Jewish, Greco-Roman folk. They had real class diversity, including folks from the very affluent class who, who lived lives built around philosophy and academia and leisure, as well as day laborers and slaves. And part of the reason that the community gathered late in the day on Sunday was because many of the members of the community had work to do. They, they didn't have a weekend like we do. So the gather, gathering had to be after the workday had concluded. The center point of the gathering was what is described um, as elsewhere in the New Testament as a love feast. They were shared meals provided kind of potluck style for the whole community. And those who had more resources generally provided most of the food for the broader community. Now, there's not a lot we can actually say definitively about the practices of the early church, what they talked about, exactly what they did in their meetings. But this is what we know most clearly, that the earliest communities 
of Jesus followers came together in solidarity around faith in the risen Jesus Christ by sharing a common table every week, echoing the practice that had been central to Jesus's own ministry. This radical table fellowship was the ritual they were building that came to be known as the Lord's Supper. But how did the process go? As Paul points out, there were some issues in Corinth. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and pick it up starting with verses, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent, I believe it. Now, I'm going to just say here, he's being sarcastic. He's been talking through most of the letter about how frustrated he is about all of the divisions in Corinth. And you hear the sarcasm continue. But of course, there must be divisions among you. So you who have God's approval will be recognized. That is like dripping in sarcasm. Going on, when you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What, don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many you of you are weak and sick and some have even died but if we would examine ourselves we would not be judged by god in this way yet when we are judged by the lord we are being disciplined so we will not be condemned along with the world so my dear brothers and sisters when you gather for the lord's supper wait for each other if you are really hungry eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together I'll give you instructions about the other matters after I arrive. Okay, that's the chunk of what Paul has to say about the Lord's Supper. So here we have Paul speaking with a lot of charged language. Okay, I think the sarcasm he uses demonstrates kind of the intensity of his emotion here. He is passionately trying to shake his audience and like wake them up and get them to change the way they're going about this Lord's Supper ritual. But why is he so worked up? 
What's he trying to help them connect with? And how might that instruction be useful for us in any way this week? Well, the first thing I notice in Paul's instruction that I think is meaningful um, is this kind of point. He seems to say, consider what this ritual is about. Consider what this ritual is about. As I discovered as a teenager, the thing with ritual is that it's easy to just do it by rote over time. You kind of become detached from what the point of the whole ritual was in the first place. In some cases, we learn the actions and the words, this is kind of true of I think myself as a teenager, without really ever having thoughtful reflection on the why behind it all. Now clearly this is not just a recent problem. The early church was having an issue with this as well. I think part of what Paul is so frustrated over in this passage is the way he feels like the behavior of the church in Corinth during the Lord's Supper is demonstrating that they have completely forgotten what the point of the whole thing was in the first place. In order to understand the ritual, Paul needs his audience to connect with the symbolic meaning of the event. This meal is not just any meal. It's not a traditional Greco-Roman supper. This is the Lord's Supper, he says. This has a specific meaning. It's memorializing an event in our collective history that centers the presence of Jesus Christ in our midst. In trying to remind the community why they share a common meal, including at its center bread and wine. Paul looks to Jesus' Last Supper with his closest followers, and he reminds them of Jesus' words and actions that their tradition holds up from that gathering. Now, these words in 1 Corinthians, which I would say have become ritualized themselves, they've become known as the words of institution. We share them ourselves as part of our communion practice here at Haven. These words reflect the very oldest, earliest theology we have around this Lord's Supper experience. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth before the gospel writers had written their own accounts. So where exactly the origin of these words comes from, we don't, we don't really know. Maybe they're original to Paul himself. Maybe there's something the Spirit has communicated to him on behalf of Jesus and his kind of divine cosmic connection, you know, that we saw at play in the story of, of his conversion. Maybe he's quoting a kind of liturgy that's been developed and shared orally amongst the early church from all these Jesus followers, some of whom, you know, were there at the initial Last Supper. Whatever the case, what we see is Paul trying to remind his listeners of the meaning of the event they're engaging by connecting them with the symbolism of it. He wants them to think about why they're doing it. By pointing to Jesus breaking the bread and lifting the cup, calling them his body broken and blood spilled for his followers, Paul's drawing the church in Corinth's attention to this deep symbolism at the heart of the Lord's Supper. This is more than just a meal to nourish the individual's physical body. This meal is an invitation to be nourished as a community by the self-sacrificial love embodied in Christ and to extend that same love 
to one another. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus is saying, I'm giving myself on your behalf. I am committed to you, not the individual you, the collective, the plural you, all y'all. I am committed to all y'all with a heart of service, even service unto death. And I am calling all of you, if you are to partake of this sacrifice, to take it into yourself, to be formed by myself giving love, to be nourished by it as you are nourished by the very food that fills your stomach, then you too need to let it form you so that you embody that same self-giving love to one another. Years later, when the Gospels were written, years after this letter had been written, three of those Gospels included some version of these words. Mark likely wrote them first, followed by Matthew and Luke, who, who took their lead from Mark. But interestingly, John, who most scholars believe wrote his gospel last and kind of did it as a counterpoint to much of what is in the other three, did not include this part um, of the Last Supper in his account. Instead of talking about Jesus breaking bread and lifting the cup, he tells a story um, that I think is making the same theological point. But the point is communicated through a different symbolic set of actions. In John, Jesus begins his last intimate gathering with his followers, this, this last supper time, by removing his outer garments and kneeling before each of them, and one by one, washing their dis disgustingly grubby feet. The act is deeply intimate and deeply subversive. The job for foot washing was a role generally for the person at the bottom of the social hierarchy, not the rabbi who would normally be at the top. Peter was so scandalized by this breaking of tradition that he, he tried to refuse the act. But Jesus made clear that to be a part of him, of the community he was giving birth to, Peter must receive this self-sacrificial love. And as Jesus then named to his followers afterwards, they were expected to follow his lead and do the same for one another. The ritual called the Lord's Supper, communion, or as some traditions refer to it as the Eucharist, this is a ritual that calls us to experience the presence of Christ in the midst of a spiritual community as we remember and absorb together the self-giving love of Christ. And we also embody that self-giving love to one another. That is the core of what it is intended to be about. And that is why Paul is so offended by how the early Christians are behaving, especially the privileged ones. The way the common meal should have been practiced in those times was that those with the most wealth and resources provided most of the collective meal, and then they undertook it together. Once the whole community had gathered, sharing with those according to their needs. But this wasn't what was happening. Instead, those who had the privilege of not spending the day working in the field, they gathered early. They laid out the spread of food that they had brought, and they felt like, fine, 
to just start eating and drinking while the laborers and slaves amongst them were toiling away. And by the time the working class folk arrived at the party, most of the food was gone and many of the privileged folks were drunk. No doubt, a number of these wealthier Corinthians thought this was totally fine. It's how most dinner parties in the Greco-Roman culture went. Folks rarely shared a table in that culture with people of different classes or social groups. So I'm sure that many of those wealthy Corinthian Christians even felt entitled to their bounty, maybe believing their financial blessing was a sign of divine favor that perhaps their less fortunate brothers and sisters just didn't have. But this attitude makes Paul livid because it's completely counter to the self-sacrificial, radically inclusive, collective Jesus was modeling and calling his followers into. The selfish behavior of the privileged Christians was counter to the very meaning of the ritual the community was enacting. Our civic election ritual is also about more than simply determining who will serve this year on city council or on our local school board or even in the White House. We vote not just to accomplish any of these things, but to assert our belief in the very idea of a democracy. The vote symbolizes our belief in self-governance, the notion that we should have a voice in our collective life. When we lose sight of the meaning of the practice, we may also dishonor it or take it for granted. Especially on the presidential level, it can be easy for some of us in states like California to cynically feel like maybe our votes don't matter that much. This state's gonna go blue no matter what, right? But the practice of voting holds a meaning beyond our own individual capacity to tip things to the red or the blue side of the scale. Whether we live in a swing state or not, whether we vote in person or by mail, our participation in this ritual is ultimately about upholding this powerful ethic the election ritual is connected to, the ideal that all of us collectively should have a voice in how we live together. Now it must be named that this ideal is one we've never as a nation managed to fully live into. Just as the church has struggled throughout its history to embody the ideal of self-giving love at the heart of the Christian ritual we've talked about, as a nation, we have struggled to make space for an expansive electorate that listens to the voices of the poor, to the voices of color, to women, to queer folk, to the disabled, as eagerly as we listen to the voices of wealthy, able-bodied, straight, white men. Even today, open access to the ballot is actively being challenged by many in our current administration. But as citizens who are also people of faith, we engage in this electoral process because we understand the ideal to which we are continuing to fight and to work, that all human beings who are created in the image of God, which is all of us, amen, all of us we ca who call this nation home must have a say in our democratic dream. This is the why behind the civic ritual we engage this week. So Paul reminds us when we think about our rituals to consider their meaning, 
What else is he saying in his letter? I think one of the things he's saying that's helpful is he's asking them to engage in a way that builds collective identity. Engage in a way that builds collective identity. Just a chapter earlier, Paul actually kind of gave us a little prelude. He alluded to this practice with these words. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? When we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing we are one body. This passage here is where we get this other name for the practice, communion. The word here for sharing is connected to the same word that we get communion from. It's a shared common experience. The Lord's Supper is not meant to be a solitary thing. This is meant to be a corporate practice. The ritual is meant to build collective identity to help us experience ourselves as part of that collective body Paul calls the body of Christ. When we participate in the ritual, it's not just about our own personal experience of faith. We are invited into something more powerful to participate in a ritual that has been observed by Christ followers throughout the globe for generations. On this, what some traditions call All Saints Day, we recognize all of those who have come before us, the ancestors who have taken this meal. We are taking the same bread as those from traditions very different than our own throughout history, some of whom we may disagree with immensely over theology or practice. And yet, somehow, as we share this common meal with millions of others, past and present, we also share with them the same hope and commitment to a community rooted in the self-giving love that is embodied in the Christ. It's a profoundly unifying vision. Now I have to admit that as I've been working on this teaching this week and, and talking with our staff about Haven's own practices around communion, I feel like I've become aware in, in, in some small way at least, I've started to become aware of how my shaping, and I would say by extension, haven shaping by the white evangelical tradition has led us to practice communion in a way that I would say is much more individualistic than what I think Paul's calling the church to here. Because the truth is, in the evangelical churches where my faith was formed, communion was a pretty individualistic practice. We all did it at the same time, but the focus was often about me having my individual moment to kind of connect with Jesus, to be fed by Jesus. Others who were part of the early forming of Haven, I think had similar backgrounds. And so for years, when we have gathered in person, most weeks we've just invited folks to kind of come up on their own, when they're ready, if they want, and take communion. And it's been a very personal, and also individual experience. And while I have to say, I still love and respect that we value building a diverse community for whom, in which perhaps not everyone identifies with the practice of the Lord's Supper, I still feel called now more than ever to find ways that are true to our haven character, 
to as we continue to grow communally, to live into that communal experience in this practice that I think is meant to actually embody. Now, I say this also in the midst of COVID, right? When none of us are in a room together. And so in this time of virtual church, this feels more challenging than ever to find a way to engage. But I think this challenge is one that um, I wanna call us to think creatively about. If nothing else, that we're thinking about our collective experience. But one idea I've seen other churches do in this COVID season that I thought we might try, if not weekly on occasion, is to potentially share a bread recipe. And as a community, bake the bread during the week. And then when we gather virtually on Sunday, at least sometimes, we can share that common experience of eating the bread that we collectively have baked. So, so you know, next Sunday, I'm gonna be giving another teaching, um, two Sundays in a row, um, and this will be the final teaching in our series on collectivity. We'll kind of wrap it. Um, and I thought that might be a Sunday worth trying as we kind of end this series, a time where we could give this a try. So this week I'll share a simple recipe for unleavened bread via email, via Slack. Anyone who's up for baking it at home is welcome to. Of course, if you're not, that's totally fine. And if some of us might feel like we wanna bake enough to share, um, we'd love to help coordinate that. Ultimately, it's not so much about whether or not you bake bread. The point is to find ways to build our collective identity through this practice, through this ritual, even in this time of physical distancing. Turning to the election ritual, I ask you to consider how are we building our collective identity as citizens this election season? I feel like I'm seeing it in all kinds of hopeful ways, and I'd invite you to be considering that question um, yourself this week. A few places I've been encouraged to see collective identity being built are in the pictures of folks across the country standing in these long lines for hours to cast their votes early, hearing the stories of the connections they made in those lines. So I see this in activists taking to the streets, demanding access to the vote, to stand up for democracy, or, or some of the lawyers who are working on their cases to make sure that our votes are counted. I see it in folks giving of their time and energy and resources to the campaigns they believe in, to phone banking, to texting for, uh, for issues that matter. I see it as those like many of us who are in California may feel like we have a solitary kind of voting experience. We're dropping off a ballot, we're putting it in the mailbox, we're not kind of collectively at the polls, but in new ways, perhaps family members are going through their ballots together, friends are doing it over Zoom together. I see that kind of collective energy. And all of that brings me to my last point I want to end with from Paul about ritual that I think matters for us too to keep in mind. Paul's asking the community to recognize that how we engage the ritual has real consequences. How we engage it has real consequences. For Paul's audience, he makes clear that the consequence of engaging in the ritual in a way that's counter to its intent, like has real world impact. Some people in the community were sick and even dying. 
Now, some interpret this as God responding to the community in a, like, a punitive way and like striking people down. Another interpretation I'd offer is that the community's neglect of some of its members, its, its own choice not to care for the most vulnerable amongst them was causing folks in the collective to fall ill and as a consequence of poor nutrition and inadequate care. The community itself was, it was making choices as a collective that, that negatively impacted people within the community in a real way. Whatever Paul meant, the takeaway I'm struck with is that there are consequences to how we engage our, elective, our collective rituals. How we perform them actually matters. When we engage these rituals in self-serving ways that degrade our collective identity, there are negative consequences for all of us. This pandemic year has demonstrated, perhaps in more than most experiences in our lifetime, in such a clear way, how our individual choices can impact our collectives. The Bay Area is doing relatively well right now to the rest of the country in regards to COVID because I think we've adopted high mask compliance. People are willing to accept the nuisance of the mask for the benefit of the community. And so our commitments to the health of our collective are making a difference, even as cases are rising in much of the country where that hasn't been the case. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul reminded his listeners to take the, their ritual seriously and consider the consequences of how they enacted it. In the same way, I'd encourage all of us to be mindful as we engage our civic ritual this week and in the weeks to come, how we engage the democratic process matters. Let us vote. Let us advocate. Let us speak out in a way that is mindful of the real consequences, not only for ourselves, but for others in our community, particularly the most mar marginalized and vulnerable in our body politic. And even as we advocate, even as we debate, even as we protest, may we remember that how we engage even those with whom we deeply disagree matters. May we engage in ways that do not dehumanize one another or destroy our collective, but rather in ways that bring healing, wholeness, and endurance to our democracy, even as we fight for what we deeply believe in. Friends, ultimately, I've invited us this morning to reflect on these two sets of rituals, not because they're the same, not to equate them with one another, nor to pit them against each other in any way. But because I hope to remind us in this week that can feel so fiercely wrapped up in this civic ritual, and rightly so, that as people of faith, we are people of, of a kind of conflicted allegiance. We participate in more than one collective. We have more than one centering ritual that we're a part of. So may we participate fully and passionately in our practice of faith. May we participate fully and passionately in our practice of democracy. And may our willingness to follow the one who embodied freedom, liberation, access for all, and self-giving love empower us to live into all of our collective identities in ways that bring healing, 
wholeness and life in the days to come. Amen. Thank you, friends. Mm-hmm.